Um, I don't know if you guys get our weekly email, um, but in, in this week's weekly email, I mentioned that I've been struggling through a uniquely challenging week. And it's not only because Jeff is gone and I'm doing everything I can from keeping this place burning to the ground. That's a joke. Um, On Monday, my wife's grandfather uh, died, her dad's dad. And on Tuesday, her grandmother, her mom's mom, uh, went in for a really serious surgery um, that she has come out of. She's stable, um, but she's yet to, to fully recover. That is in addition uh, to some serious issues that we've mentioned the past couple of weeks that are going on in another local church, uh, which served to remind me of several Christian men who have been meaningful in my life, uh, who have just made significant failures with immense consequences. That served to remind me about that. Um, Also, the one-year anniversary of the closing of Impact, the community center that I worked at for four years before working at Center uh, City Church, uh, recently rolled around. The one-year anniversary did. And shortly thereafter, the Impact building was uh, demolished, torn to the ground. That's not to mention... Christian Taylor. I'm not sure if that name sticks out to you all. The latest name added to an increasingly long list of unarmed African Americans that have been shot and killed by the police. It's been a heavy week for me personally. Uh, It's been a heavy season uh, for my wife and I, our family, and I'm sure that that's true of several of you as well. But it's not uh, all bad, and I, I need to clarify that. It's not all bad. As my wife's family struggled through uh, the realities of illness and the realities of death, I was struck. I really was by their sweetness uh, and their sensitivity, their togetherness, um, that they laugh together, that they cry together, their withing with one another, that word that Jeff introduced a couple of weeks ago. Um, the local church issues have been reason for City Church to our leadership to get together and have some honest and hard conversations, pray for one another, uh, and even for some of us to reach out to other local pastors uh, to build with them, to encourage them, and to pray together. And on the one-year anniversary of Impact's closing, uh, me and kind of a gang of guys, Merrick and a bunch of, of our friends, got together over uh, at, at Impact on the other side of the gates uh, to take a picture to commemorate the building and the fellowship that we had there. Life is full of beauty and awe and wonder. And at the same time, uh, life is full of abuse and injustice, greed, fear, suicide, depression, destruction, and death. I don't say that to bait and hook you. I don't say that for shock value, uh, but simply as a reminder of the reality that we all find ourselves in, uh, even this morning as we're in church. Our current reality requires unashamed, sober, and courageous engagement. But there are many folks who advocate for an alternative solution to our problems. Some Christians uh, say that we should avoid and escape the problems of our world, and that that is the appropriate response. For instance, it's not uncommon, and and I'm not picking on y'all because I know I'm outnumbered in here, uh, but it's not uncommon to hear elder generations uh, reminisce about the good old days, a golden age of social peace and economic prosperity and a moral majority. Again, I'm not picking on y'all, but nostalgia uh, is often avoidance. 
And how about escape? The development of, of a Christian subculture and a counterculture where alternative Christian communities can not only survive, uh, but they can be self-sufficient. They can self-sustain. They don't need to be with or look outside of themselves. I think that this escape from reality is what Marx was getting at, and we'll pull this quote up on the screen. It's often summarized and kind of botched, but I think this is what Marx was getting at when he said, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of the soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Religion is. Our complicated and complex reality calls for engagement, not avoidance, not escape. With the scripture as our truth this morning, um, and history as our witness, I'd like to borrow King Solomon's famous words that there's nothing new under the sun as a reminder that our reality today, our complicated and complex reality, is not a new one. It's just life as we know it. Life as we've always known it, but not all of life. So the title of my sermon today is Life as We Know It and the Parentheses of Prayer, which I'll continue to unpack throughout the next few minutes, uh, but I want to clar- clarify two things before we proceed. And listen up here, because this, this, this really does uh, matter. One, we all build our lives on a framework, on a worldview. All of us do. And I'm not here to say which one is right and which one is wrong and which is good and which is bad. We all build our lives on a worldview. Maybe financial, maybe political, maybe practical, maybe theological, maybe it's pieced together with all of those things. But our worldviews are absolutely worthless if they can't hold the weight of our complicated and complex reality. And I submit to you this morning that the only worldview that can hold the weight of our reality is the gospel. And then to clarify something about the parentheses of prayer, I I chose that phrase, I picked that little verbiage because prayer encompasses our reality. It's not an escape from our reality. All the things that we deal with, that we bring into church with us Sunday after Sunday and seldom talk about, prayer encompasses those things. And we'll see a little bit of that in today's text. And life as we know it in the parentheses of prayers is a brief hiatus from the current series that we've been in, the Gospel of Mark, three and a half years in the life. Uh, We take intentional pauses like today uh, to step away from where we've been and sort of cleanse our palate, rest and refresh. Uh, For those of you who call City Church home, I'm sure that you're thankful for that pause. We've been trucking through that Mark series for a while. Um, and for those of you who are joining us for the first time here in service or by po- uh, podcast and app, my name is Sean Little. I'm the community teaching pastor, and I, wanna, I want to welcome you uh, to City Church. Now, next Sunday, Jeff is going to continue that sermon series that we've been in, the Gospel of Mark sermon series. And what he's going to be talking about uh, is the power of of Jesus, the power of Jesus. So in anticipation, kind of priming the pump for that, my objective today is to show how any of us who believe in Jesus or who today choose to believe in Jesus can engage our complicated and complex reality 
through and because of the power of Jesus. That's what I'm after today. I'm confident that the text that we're going to be looking at, which is Acts 16, and you can go ahead and get out your app or your Bible and flip to Acts 16, put a uh, thumb in it, we'll get there in a second. I'm confident that that text has the ability uh, to transform our lives, if we understand it, revolutionizing how we choose to engage. But first, let me catch us up on what's been happening prior to this text. So in the book of Acts, what's been going on? Um, As many of you know, a little bit later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, who is one of the main characters of today's text, uh, wrote a letter to a group of Christians in a place called Philippi. And we refer to that letter as the letter to the Philippians. In that letter, Paul talks about and writes about how influential that community of believers or that church is and how thankful he is to God for their partnership in helping him advance the gospel. The Philippian church was a key instrument in establishing and spreading the gospel throughout the entire known world at that time. And this just bugs me out. But the gospel, that same gospel that they were peddling and pushing and uh, preaching back then, is the reason why we're here this morning. Uh, Unless you got invited, then your friend is the reason why you're here. But if you're a Christian, the gospel is the reason that you're here uh, 2,000 years later. Acts 16 tells the story of the supernatural beginning of that church, this Philippian church. The fascinating story begins before Paul even arrives in Philippi. In uh, Acts 16, verses uh, 6 through 10 The scripture tells us that Paul actually wanted to be somewhere else. He wanted to go to Asia. And that reminds me so much of so many of my friends in Evansville. They want to be somewhere else. They want to go somewhere else. And the Apostle Paul would say, I feel you. He wanted to go to Asia. But verse 7 reads that the Spirit of Jesus would not allow him, it says them, him and friends of his, to go to Asia. Then one night, Paul has a vision of a man in Macedonia begging him to come to Macedonia and to help him. Macedonia is where Philippi is. We connecting the dots here? Okay. Let's not uh, miss the sequence of events before we proceed. Paul wants to go to Asia because he wants to preach the gospel in Asia. But somehow the spirit of Jesus won't allow him to do that. And I don't know what that looked like. Uh, you know, I, don't, I don't know what that looked like. But somehow, that the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow him to go to Asia. Then, Paul has this supernatural vision of a man beckoning him to Macedonia. He responds, he obeys that beckoning, and in verse 11 and 12, uh, the scripture tells us that Paul arrives in Philippi, which again is a leading city of Macedonia. So, why does all of this happen? Why does the Spirit of Jesus not allow Paul to go to Asia? To do a good thing, right? He's going to preach the gospel. You would figure uh, God would give the cosign and let him do that. And then why did Paul have this supernatural vision? Why did that happen? Why was uh, the man beckoning him? That why is what we're going to get after here in verse 13. So read along with me. Acts 16, verse 13. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. 
we sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So, for some unknown reason, Paul and his homeboys, uh, Silas and then others, received this call to go to Macedonia. They arrive in Philippi, a Roman colony there, where there are n- there's not a Jewish synagogue there. Uh, Jewish law required for 10 Jewish men to be present for a synagogue to be able to be constructed. They don't have that, so instead they have this place of prayer, a gathering place where people pray. So Paul and his clique uh, decided that that would be a good place to start, seeing if anyone was interested in the gospel. Uh, They discovered a small group of women down there at the place of prayer, one whom was a businesswoman, Lydia. She was a Gentile, and she was from Asia. So she was a non-Jew from Asia who worshipped the God of Israel, the God of the Jews. And at this point, I'm sure some of you guys are asking, What does this have to do with that complicated and complex reality thing that you were talking about a little bit earlier? And what does this have to do with the power of Jesus? And what does this have to do with the parentheses of prayer? I want to answer those questions, but first I want to ask a question to try to connect some dots. Is it possible that the prayers of these women, Lydia and the other gals who met in the place of prayer were the reason that Paul was not allowed to go into Asia. Is that possible? And is that the reason that he had that supernatural vision saying, come to Philippi, come to Macedonia? Is that possible? Uh, I admit the text doesn't say so uh, specifically, so give me a little bit of room to work here. I don't think it's a stretch. So in response to Lydia and the women who met to pray... We see God do a few things. One, God supernaturally prevents Paul from going where he wants to go. Two, God supernaturally gives Paul this vision to go to a place that he had no interest in going. And three, God supernaturally opens Lydia's heart to respond to the gospel. All of this in response to the prayers of a small group of women whose complicated And complex reality did not allow them the authority to establish a religious institution. They didn't have the authority to establish a synagogue. So how did they respond? They didn't rage against the machine. They didn't build a building and say, well, we got it popping over here. They prayed, right? Their complicated and complex reality was enveloped by prayer. So they needed a kind of mobile church setup like we have here this morning. Um, But they were down by the river. They were on the riverbanks, which reminded me uh, of where my wife would go with some of her friends to pray, right? Us uh, intellectual pastor-preacher guys, we would go to the church. We would go to a library. We would go inside where the air conditioning is. uh, But my wife and her friends would go outside. They'd go somewhere beautiful uh, and natural and untainted, uninterrupted. So they prayed. And in fact, here we see that that parentheses of prayer, again, encompasses their complex and complicated reality. And God heard their prayer. 
And we see that, the power of Jesus, in what unfolds. So I want to make two quick observations. One, sometimes God responds to our prayers in ways that we do not know how to ask for. If anyone has prayed before, can I get an amen on that? All right. Sometimes God responds to our prayers in ways we don't even know how to ask for. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that God rewards those who earnestly seek him. So there's no evidence that Lydia knew anything about Jesus, the person, the man, the recently murdered and buried and resurrected uh, Messiah of the Jews. In fact, what we know about Lydia is that she's not a Jew herself, even though she worshipped the God of the Jews. And that God loved her. And that God sent Paul to her. And that God had Paul walk down into the riverbanks and share the gospel with her so that Lydia could receive what she did not even know she needed in the gospel in Jesus, and she received the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are times uh, that I pray, um, and I don't know what to pray for. I don't know what I'm asking for. Uh, What I do know is that I need God, um, I need his help, I need his intervention, and I need him. Two quick stories. The first is, uh, this week with Aaron's grandmother, I walk in the room and, you know, like, this is kind of the bad part about being a public Christian, I guess, or a, a vocational one. I walked in the room and she said, hey, will you pray for me? And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I supposed to pray for right now? How do you, I mean, she's in a hospital bed. This is terrible. It doesn't look good, the diagnosis. So I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll pray for you. I didn't know what to pray for. So I kind of prayed for what I didn't even know what to ask for, for wisdom and health and peace, and I didn't know what to pray for. And then here's another uh, longer story, which I'll warn you guys, this one really is kind of long, so get ready. (laughs) Uh, So when I was 15 years old, uh, I moved from my mom's house to my dad's house. I switched neighborhoods, I switched high schools, and seriously, for all you 15-year-olds out there, I thought that my life was over finished, done, new neighborhood, new school. As a freshman, uh, I kind of dove headlong uh, into weed, uh, both smoking and selling weed, greed, and girls. That was like my little, that was my little equation. Um, And that was, again, my anthem uh, for several years, drug, sex, and rock and roll. Well, rap, but you get the point. Uh, When I was a sophomore, my homeboy said to me, he was a new friend of mine, he said, let's go to Young Life. I said, what is young life? He said, young life is where all the hot girls are. I said, let's go to young life. So I remember my, my first uh, young life club. It was in what I thought was a mansion, right? We were out in the suburbs now. It was a big old suburb house. We went into the basement and the girls were hot, so hot that they were sweating. There were so many people down in that basement. Everybody was jumping around and singing these terrible rock and roll songs. And like to top off the weirdest experience that i had had in my life. At the end of this Young Life Club, this old dude, I mean, he was like 40 years old. He got up and he shared uh, about Jesus and about God's love for men and for women and for me uh, in my brokenness and in my selfishness and in my ugliness. And seriously, it was the weirdest thing that I had ever been to in my entire life. But I kept going to Young Life for the rest of high school. I kept hearing about Jesus, and I kept hearing about God's love for me. 
and simultaneously, I kept loving myself the best that I knew how. Weed and greed and girls. While I was hearing about God's love. And then uh, my senior year rolled around and some things really started uh, to change. So I had been smoking and selling weed primarily with my older brother Scott. And it was all good. There were no consequences. It was just glorious. Until Scott ended up in rehab for the first time. And all of a sudden there were consequences. And then greed, selling weed and stealing and always having my grubby little paws out looking to take something and to sell it and to buy stuff and to have stuff. Again, without consequences until the last day of my junior year of high school when I go outside uh, to see this car that I put too much time and money and energy and attention into uh, completely totaled because someone had covered it in acid, $12,000 worth of damage. So greed, right, and possessions gone in an instant. Consequences. And girls, again, uh, dating girls uh, was always glamorous. There was no consequences to any of it uh, until kind of some, some people in my circle uh, started getting pregnant and STDs. And again, there were consequences to what had been without consequence for a long time. So my senior year, you know, I wasn't a Christian yet, uh, but I kind of backed off of a lot of the stuff that I had been involved in. Because everything I had built my life on and the things that I was deriving my identity from was kind of all of a sudden gone. Uh, the consequences had made themselves known, and I was like, I don't want those consequences. So I kicked it, I withdrew, uh, only built with a couple of people, and went to Young Life, kept going to Young Life. Uh, the summer after my senior year, and this is the conclusion of this little story. I know you're like, man, he said it was going to be long, but do we? So the summer after my senior year, uh, I went with my dad on family vacation. We went down to Florida. On the way back home, of my own volition for the first time, I prayed. I didn't know what I was praying for. I kind of didn't, I mean, I knew this Jesus, I knew this God. I didn't kind of know who I was praying to. Uh, my prayer was simple, and it was straightforward. And I kind of like miss those prayers, right? Now that I've studied a little bit of theology and doctrine and history and church and Christian, I kind of miss those simple and straightforward prayers that I used to pray. I said, God, I hear that you love people. If you love me, prove it, and I'm yours. And that was it. That was the whole prayer, driving in the middle of the night. And I looked on the dashboard, and I can't ever get this image out of my mind, but it was 1 a.m. on the dashboard, driving in the middle of the night. We got back to Cincinnati. I got to my dad's house. I crashed. Uh, I went to sleep. And then I woke up sort of abruptly to my dad in my bedroom, which was real weird. It was one of the first times I remember uh, my dad being in my bedroom, certainly the first time I ever remember him crying. Uh, and he told me, your grandma, uh, who had lived with us for years, uh, she died. Man, that was heavy. So I went downstairs and I joined my dad uh, and my uncle Lance and my older brother Scott. And my dad was talking about it a little bit. Uh, and he said, the coroner told me uh, that your grandmother died at 1 a.m. That's the day that I became a Christian. Uh, August 17th of 2003, believing in Jesus, responding to the good news that not only God loves people and he sent his son as a sacrifice for their sin, but that he heard my prayer, that I mattered to him, and that he responded in a way that I couldn't get away from. But I didn't know what I was praying for. Second observation, God began responding to Lydia's prayer before she even knew it. 
Lydia had no idea who Paul was. She had no idea that the Spirit of Jesus kept him from going where he wanted to go. She had no idea that he got this vision in the middle of the night beckoning him to her neck of the woods. And she didn't know any of that, but God was responding to her prayers. Here's something that I want to realize that I want all of us uh, to realize. You may be praying for something right now. And I'm, I'm sure in light of our complex and complicated reality, that there are some prayers going on right now. And it might feel like, seem like, nothing is happening. But God may be responding to those prayers in a way that you have no ability to grasp or understand. Like he's done for me, uh, like he's done, I'm sure, for countless of others of you, and certainly like he did with Lydia, which we just saw. Maybe you're praying uh, for your son or for your daughter, that they would uh, know Jesus, that they would love him, that they would follow him. And I tell you what, if I was your son, you would, felt, you would have felt hopeless for a long, long time. Be encouraged. Keep praying. Be encouraged. Keep praying. Because who would have thought that when I left the neighborhood and when I left my high school and when I was delving uh, headlong into the things that I thought would satisfy me, that God would be present in all of that, that he would be active in all of that. And when I got to the point of exhaustion and when I got to the point that it wasn't satisfying, God was working and he was present in all of that. And who would have thought that that perverted little invite that my teenager friend gave me, right? God would be working in that. I didn't go to hear the gospel. I went for the girls. And I heard about Jesus for the first time. After I uh, became a Christian, I started praying uh, for my older brother, Scott. And, and you guys don't know too much about my family background. My mom's here this morning. Uh, give a quick shout out to my mom. Say hello. All right. But I started uh, praying for my, my older brother, Scott, best friend, my dad in a lot of ways. Uh, and he was sort of continuing down that road that I had been in, kind of depression and addiction. I'd pray for him. Uh, I'd share the gospel with him when we were together. I'd share the gospel with him when we were apart on the phone. I'd share the gospel with him when he was high. I'd share the gospel with him when he was sober. And he never responded. I mean, the responses that I expected out of Scott were like the first time that I shared my raps with him. He was very clear and straightforward. That sucks. Your raps are terrible. So I expected some kind of response out of Scott, but I never got one when I shared the gospel with him. And then one night, uh, I got a phone call from my mom, and she asked if I would go to a church, uh, her church. She said, I already got your brother going with me. And I was like, word, Scott's going to that church with you? Uh, she said, I'd appreciate it if you came out this evening. Um, so kind of against my own, you know, desire, I went to that church to be with my mom and to be with my brother. Uh, lo and behold, out of nowhere, that's the day, the night that my brother responded to the gospel. I'm so glad that I went and I responded to my uh, mom's invitation because I had the chance uh, to pray with my brother uh, the day that he became a Christian, which was about, about two months before uh, he died. God may be responding to your prayers even when you don't understand how he's responding to them, even when it doesn't feel like he is responding to them. Be encouraged and keep praying. So, if you think what we've seen thus far is fascinating, uh, you haven't seen anything yet, we'll pick up here in verse 16, back to the text. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept us up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed 
that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that the hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates. Sorry. And said, these men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, I don't know what y'all are going through this morning, and I don't know what you bring to church with you, but this is a complicated and complex reality. Slavery for profit, fortune-telling, annoyance, court, accusations, stripped, severely beaten, chained, put in prison. That is a very complicated and complex reality. So, after Lydia and her household believed and trusted Jesus, they continued their prayer meetings. This is what we're coming out of. Kept praying down by the river. And while the text doesn't tell us what they're praying for, again, I'm going to make an assumption here that Paul, who knew he was sent to Philippi to preach the gospel, was praying for more converts and the establishment of a church. Now, there's something very important to see here. It's important not to pass over this. It's not a coincidence that the advancement of the gospel was met with opposition, both physical and spiritual opposition. I'm sure you all know this, but the prince of this planet and the powers of hell hate Jesus. They hate Jesus, and they hate the effects that Jesus has on people's lives interpersonally. So Satan goes to war with folks who are determined to continue in the gospel, sharing the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for men and women. But Ephesians 6.12 reminds us of what this war is like. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But a lot of times, because we can't see that, we don't really believe in, in spiritual warfare in that regard. I mean, if, if we saw like the poltergeist girl, right? A green face and projectile vomiting and her head turning around 360, we say, oh, she's demon possessed. Uh, this is bad. But what we see in the scriptures is that there was a demon possessed girl and the only indications were was that she was obnoxious. She talked too much. She hollered. And by that indication, well... So once the demon uh, is cast out, did you notice what form the spiritual warfare took? What form it embodied? Slave owners lose their money. They accuse Paul and Silas of violating the law. They're stripped, beaten, shackled, and put in jail. Sometimes Satan masquerades the supernatural in very natural ways. And here's why uh, we must be praying individually in our own lives uh, and as a church. This happened when they were on their way to prayer. This is when this occurred. The demon-possessed girl followed them as they were on their way to prayer. Satan will do anything that he can. And look, I'm not one of these big, like, my light is flickering, so that's Satan, guys. 
uh, like the basement is scary, Satan's down there. I'm not one of those guys, and I'm not trying to like overplay the Satan card, but Satan is real, uh, and he seeks to devour. So Satan responds, I would say, to the prayers that he knows are going to be effective and going to push forward the gospel, get converts, and build a church. Satan will use, again, what appears to be merely natural as supernatural war that results in oppression and discouragement and frustration to foil our plans. So continue praying in your own life. Continue praying as a church for the church uh, that we are, that we represent. And as we continue even to move forward into a more permanent place, be prayerful about our presence in the city. It was certainly Satan's desire that Paul and Silas would be discouraged, frustrated, and give up. I mean, honestly, if this happened to y'all, wouldn't you just pack your bags up and go home? I mean, I don't know that I'm going to get beat with a rod out on Martin Luther King Street, put in the Civic Center or the court or go to court, end up in jail, and be like, oh yeah, I'll be back to preach on next Sunday. Realistically, I don't know if if I'm built like that. So surely... uh, Satan thought that this was going to stop them. But let's see what happens next in verse 25. So they're in jail. Uh, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open. And everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew a sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God. He and his whole household. Again, what a complicated and complex reality we see here in the scripture. Natural disaster, maybe supernatural, but it looks like natural disaster. Fear, hopelessness, suicide. And simultaneously, again, we see that parentheses of prayer. And we see the power of Jesus in response to the parentheses of prayer. I mean, surely Satan thought that he had stopped the gospel from going forward, at least in Philippi. Maybe not everywhere, but at least in Philippi. When he got Silas and Paul beaten, accused, and put in jail. Again, forget about it. Most people are going to call it a day and go home. He wasn't planning that they would pray in response to that. That they would look at their reality and say, this isn't the ultimate truth. I can, I can pray. My reality can fit within the parentheses of prayer. They had no strength of their own. They had no master plan. They didn't have an escape plan. But they had prayer. And God rewards those who seek him. He responds to our prayers God trumped Satan with a miraculous demonstration of his power. Even in the place where Satan expected victory, the jail cell, he still loses. Even where he expected victory, he lost. As prisoners became preachers. 
and as the jailer was set free from the consequence of his sin. And you know, I'm sure uh, Satan expected victory. Again, when I self-seekingly went to Young Life, not for the gospel, but for the girls. I'm sure he expected victory there. I'm sure uh, Satan expected victory that time that my brother and I uh, sort of rebelliously and unwillingly went to church. And I don't know how many of y'all this morning rebelliously and unwillingly chose to come to church. As I thought of all those, I bet uh, the place where Satan really expected victory was at Calvary. I'm sure that's where he really thought, I'm going to take this win and go home. The place of skulls, that hill outside of the city where cursed folks were sent. Where Rome unleashed its wrath on the guilty and the innocents. Where Rome unleashed its wrath on the innocent for the guilty. When the Lord Jesus carried his old rugged cross outside of the city. Up that hill. And before he gave up his life, he prayed. The parentheses of prayer. What a complicated and complex reality for the Lord of the universe to be beaten dragged outside of the city and about to be crucified on a cross. So before that happened, the parentheses of prayer, he prayed, Why have you forsaken me? And then he gave up his life, murdered, buried, resurrected, for you and for me. Just like Paul said in the jail, so that we may believe and be saved. This is really one that I hearken on. We have these banners around the room. Uh, in, in a really complicated and complex set of circumstances, a jailer who was at once the enemy of the Christians said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He said, Believe and you will be saved. And yes, they got baptized, but he didn't say, Believe and be baptized. Believe and repent. Believe and go to church. Believe and quit your job. Believe and be in ministry. He said, believe and you will be saved. And he was filled with joy because he came to believe in God. I wonder this morning if there are some of you who, who have not believed before. Uh, and maybe when I pray to close here in a second, uh, you'll take a, a second to pray like I did years ago uh, when I just responded to what I had heard. Not necessarily knowing how God uh, was going to respond to it. Look to Jesus, who has lived a perfect life and died a perfect death to pay the punishment of all of our sins. Believe and be saved. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father God, we thank you that our uh, complicated and complex reality is not a surprise to you this morning. Uh, We know that you saw uh, things begin to unravel in the Garden of Eden so long ago. You saw your paradise become imperfect. Uh, You saw a a perfect intention of yours um, smudged and set off course. But you've never been content uh, to allow our complex and complicated reality to trump your intention. Uh, Lord, we see ultimately that you have intended Uh, to make a people for yourself, and that you have done everything for us in the person and the work of your son, Jesus, who, even in the most complicated and complex reality of his life, uh, moments before he chose to give up his life, prayed to you. On our behalf that he was uh, crucified, that we may believe and be saved. 
Lord, we know that the gospel has immense implications on our life. The gospel is not just a doorway into Christianity. It is the whole of Christianity. Uh, So for those of us who believe, I pray that you work this out in our hearts. What does it look like for us to love you and to trust you and to call out to you, even in simple uh, and maybe ignorant words? What does it look like for us to continue to pray for things that are not being answered, to trust you in those things? What does it look like for us to pray in our own lives, uh, through our own complicated and complex realities? What does it look like for us to be praying for City Church? What does it look like for us to be praying for the other churches here in Evansville who preach the gospel? What does it look like for us to be praying for our city and for our neighbors, for those who don't know you yet? But we have the courage to press on through our complicated and complex realities, trusting that you are good, trusting that you intend for people to be saved and pray. Lord, we thank you that you tell us to come to you boldly, uh, that we can approach your throne because you don't see us uh, in our brokenness and in our rebellion and our sin, uh, but you see the perfect life, death, uh, and resurrection of your son. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name that I pray. Amen.